0: I would tell you to open up your Bibles, but uh, it's what I'm going to read from this morning might not be in your Bible, unless you have basically a Catholic Bible, a New Jerusalem Bible. Uh, This is in uh, what I want to read from today is uh, basically in what's called the Apocrypha. It's these books. There's a collection of books that not everybody agreed needed to be in the Bible, that it, uh, not anyhow, not everybody agreed on it. There are other books that nobody agreed, (laughs) you know, should be in the Bible. Um, and so, uh, this is in that collection that some people said that it should, some people said that it shouldn't. And as Susan has already shared with us, it actually is in your Bible, um, about, uh, Hanukkah, which means dedication. Um, I've, I heard one individual say that it's actually kind of uh, humorous if you're witnessing to a Jewish person or whatever and you want to ask them about Hanukkah and ask them to show it to you in their Bible, they're going to say, well, it's not in our Bible. And then you can jokingly say, I know it's actually in ours (laughs) because it actually is there in John chapter chapter 10, uh, where it says that Jesus was there in the temple. It was winter, and it was the Feast of Dedication. <clears throat> so this event that happened, and I'm going to read some of this. I've got a collection of verses out of First Maccabees, um, which is where this is recorded <clears throat> um, to try to help us understand the story. <clears throat> but um, this uh, event uh, is about them uh, recapturing actually kicking, if you will, uh, one of the Greek empires. This is after Alexander the Great. His kingdom gets divided, and then there are these uh, successing successing kings in these areas. Uh, All of this happened about, I'm I'm just going to round it off, 150 years, this time of The Maccabean Revolt—you probably might have heard it uh, referred to that way—the Maccabean Revolt, uh, which comes from one of the sons of Mattathias, whose name was Judas—or Judah—I'm sorry, Judah, also referred to as Maccabee, and Maccabee means the hammer. Uh, And so, um, uh, anyways, that's that's a title he was given. So, this all happened about 150 years before the time of Yeshua. 150 years. And they had been celebrating the Feast of Dedication for 150 years, almost 200 years by the time Yeshua shows up. So, He's now an adult. He's 30, thereabouts. Thereabouts. Uh, and it's been about 150 years, so we're looking at 180 or so years uh, by the time Yeshua, we read this story where He's there in John chapter 10, and He's walking in the temple area, and it's winter, and it's during the Feast of Dedication, it's during Hanukkah. So this has been going on for nearly 200 years, and they've been celebrating Hanukkah, um, Anybody here other than me, uh, maybe until maybe just recently or even still today, just a little confused about Hanukkah. What in the world is Hanukkah, right? It's one of those odd feasts. This is not a biblically mandated feast. So you could refer to it if you wanted to as a strictly Jewish custom. Um, And it's gotten pretty weird You know, there's a lot of people that refer to it as the Jewish Christmas. Uh, There are a lot of Jewish people that literally put up Hanukkah bushes in their house and decorate it. And they exchange gifts and all of that. Uh, Because peer pressure is incredible, isn't it? I mean, it is powerful. Uh, It is seductive. It is relentless to cave in and watch this, be like everybody else, which is interesting because that's the story of Hanukkah. So I want to read some of these passages and I do have them uh, for you up on the screen. We'll have them up on the screen so that you can follow along. This is out of 1 Maccabees. I'm going to start with just the first 15 verses here because it gives you the background about Alexander the Great and kind of what happened. So let me read these first uh, 15 verses. It says, Alexander of Macedon, uh, son of Philip, had come from the land of Ketim and defeated Darius, king of the Persians and the Medes, whom he succeeded as ruler uh, at first in Hellas. He undertook many campaigns, gained possession of many fortresses, and put the local kings to death. So he advanced to the ends of the earth, plundering nation after nation. The earth grew silent before him, and his ambitious heart swelled with pride. He assembled very powerful forces and subdued provinces, nations, and princes, and they became his tributaries. But the time came when Alexander took to his bed. In the knowledge that he was dying, he summoned his officers, noblemen who had been brought up with him from his youth, and divided his kingdom among them while he was still alive. Alexander had reigned 12 years when he died. Each of his officers established himself in his own region. All assumed crowns after his death. They and their heirs after them for many years, bringing increasing evils on the world. So Alexander the Great, uh, he comes on the scene very quickly, overcomes pretty much everybody, especially in the Middle East, um, was pushing this Greek mindset, trying to get everybody underneath his rule. Let's have one tongue, one commerce, uh, all of that. And even in a religious sense where we all get along, uh, there's no exclusivity as far as religions go. And let's all get along and let's all speak the Greek language and embrace the Greek culture. That's important to remember. And it says that... After his death, there are these others. He, what happened was he was about to die. He knew it. He pulled in these men that he grew up with. And they were part of his soldiers and generals in his army. And he said, I'm going to divide up the kingdom among you. After he does this and he dies, there was infighting. Power is... Intoxicating. There are people that say that power and money is more addicting than cocaine. That once you taste it, you just need it and you need more of it and more of it and more of it. It's incredibly addictive. Well, these generals had seen this. They had seen Alexander the Great and he was young and what he was able to accomplish and he divided up the kingdom and they all said, I want to regain what Alexander had. And so they end up fighting each other and going back and forth. One of these kings ends up being uh, Antiochus the Third. And then his son, Antiochus fourth, and he takes on the name Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? Which means God manifest. Now, they had conquered Judea, Israel, as part of this kingdom. And the Jewish people that didn't like being overran and overruled, uh, they acted like they couldn't pronounce his name. This is actually kind of funny. They actually pretended that they couldn't say his name. And so they would pronounce his name publicly as Antiochus Epimenes. Well, in Hebrew, Antiochus Epimenes would mean Antiochus, the crazy man, the lunatic. Do you remember George Bush intentionally mispronouncing Osama bin Laden's name? It's part of the same ploy on words. Um, So what I want to do now is I want to read basically just a few verses here Starting with verse ten, down through verse uh, down through verse fifteen. I'm sorry. I'll pick up at verse ten uh, and go down through verse fifteen of 1 Maccabees uh, to give you an idea. And this isn't all of it. This is brief, an idea of what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. <clears throat> So, in 1 Maccabees, still in chapter 1, starting with verse 10, it says, From these there grew a wicked offshoot. Do you see these other play on words? Where there was a a, a shoot that would come out of the branch uh, of being Christ. Here it says, From these there grew a wicked offshoot, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. Once a hostage in Rome, he became king in the 107th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. It was then that there emerged from Israel a set of renegades who led many people astray. Come, they said, let us ally ourselves with the Gentiles surrounding us. For since we separated ourselves from them, many misfortunes have overtaken us. This proposal proved acceptable. And a number of the people eagerly approached the king who authorized them to practice the Gentiles' observances. So they built a gymnasium... In Jerusalem, such as the Gentiles have, disguised their circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant, submitting to Gentile rule as willing slaves to impiety. Now, here's where it says, out of these kings comes this wicked offshoot, Antiochus Epiphanes, and that in the midst of this time, there were some renegade Israelis. And they go, look, ever since we've separated ourselves from the Gentiles, nothing but misfortune has come upon us. You have to get back into the history you have to kind of dig, you know, like, what in the world are you talking about? What are they talking about? Well, the only way to find this stuff out is you have to dig, you have to get into the background info. Antiochus Epiphanes' father, Antiochus the king, wasn't as brutal as his son and allowed the Jewish people to still practice their faith. And still separate themselves and not be completely immersed, immersed in the Greek culture. They could still have their temple. They could still have their priest. They could still have their uh, you know, forms of worship. They could still dress different, act different, do circumcision, keep the Sabbath, keep the feast. They could still do all those things. However... If you did that in a Greek culture that was predominantly Greek, and if you did that and not everybody in your society agreed with your religious fervor, there were certain opportunities not accessible to you because you're different. You want to be different. Therefore, there are opportunities that just don't come your way. I'll give you a little hint. Why do you think most people, most... Not only get into, but especially stay in politics. Don't be naive, please, and think that the majority of the people in city, state, and government, national politics, I'm going to go all the way down to city, are there just because they care. I'm not saying all of them, there are some good people out there, but especially national. It's amazing when you start to look at the background info of the people that have been there, especially been there a long time, and to see how much wealth they have amassed on a governmental salary. How do you think they're getting this wealth? It's because opportunities are presented to them. They know what's going on. They know what laws were passed that force a, for example, a wall to be built over thousands of miles. I wonder who I know that's in construction. I'm just saying. And they're worth, anyways... It's because opportunities have come their way and they know somebody. It's always a wife or a cousin or a brother or their husband or whoever that just so happens to sit on the council of some company that's going to get a contract. Just by chance. It's the same kind of thing. And these people saw this and they wanted money. They wanted money. Power. And so they go, look, ever since we've separated ourselves from the Gentiles, a lot of misfortune has come our way. We need to stop doing this. And you know what's really sad? It says that the proposal proved acceptable. I mean, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is making a buck. What's the big deal? And we haven't heard from God in a couple of hundred years. This is between the Testaments. The total between Malachi and Matthew is about 400 years. So there's been a few generations that's passed by the time this happens. They're like, we ain't even heard from God in a long time. And we keep going. We keep doing this stuff. We keep killing these sheep. We don't see anything happening. As a matter of fact, we just keep getting our tails kicked every time we turn around. So what's the use? They're tired and they're not seeing the benefit. You you following with me here? So... It says that they did all this stuff, and and they they appeal to the king, and and Antiochus now is more brutal. And they go to him, and they say, we don't want to be like this anymore. We want to accept the Greek culture. We want our fair share. And Antiochus goes, cool, go build you a gymnasium and do all this, and you can do your own research. I'm not going to do that this morning on what all that meant. Uh, But I read it, and you as adults can just let your imagination go with what they were doing. Uh, They literally, uh, they did whatever they needed to do to be like everybody else, Uh, including working out in the gymnasium and all the other structures that revolved around that, which also involved uh, political and uh, physical and intellectual training, okay, uh, including working out and stuff in the buff. I'll say it that way. So <clears throat> they did all of this because everybody else was doing it and they wanted money. Now, I'm not going to get into it too much because we, we don't have time. You'd have to read all of uh, First and Second Maccabees to get all this stuff. But there's a side note that's happening. The priestly system was already very corrupt. And people were fighting over who would be high priest and also bribing the king to be placed as the high priest. Why would they do that? Why would people be fighting over becoming the high priest? Money. It is the central hub of the Jewish people were all religion, economic, and civil judgments flowed through there. Opportunity. Where there's opportunity, there's money and power. It is seductive and unruly people one by the name of Jason, uh, and another one, oh shoot, I just dropped his name, Menelaus or something like that. Anyways, these two guys have, were bidding over the, the priesthood. One had undercut the other one, and uh, the other one, I think it was Jason literally gets a a small army to go and fight against this other high priest to kick him out and kill him and stuff so that they can take over the high priest's office. Antiochus hears about this while he's fighting other campaigns and he's already tired of the Jewish people bucking the system. And the system was this. Look, if you want to be Jewish, that's fine. I really don't care if you want to be Jewish. But you have to accept these other religions as equal. In other words, you need to coexist. Kind of like... This next week, I forget which church is doing it, is going to have a celebration for the birth of Yeshua and the birth of Muhammad together. And they think that's okay. We could go on and on and on about that stuff. So what was happening was Antiochus was like, look, I don't care if you're Jewish. Matter of fact, under the Greek culture, we got a lot of gods. There's a lot of them. It's no big deal. You can worship whatever God you want. You just can't tell us that our gods are not gods. And on top of that, you can't separate yourself as being special. You got to get along. That was the whole premise. You've got to embrace the Greek culture and embrace everything that that brings with it. I don't care if you're Jewish or whatever. We just need to all get along. Nobody's better than anybody else. You following that? That is not the God of the Bible. After everything we've been studying, those of you, you've been here with me now, you understand what this war is going on in heaven, right? And that God is exclusive. He's different. He's the God that created everything. Everything came from Him, by Him, for Him, and through Him. And Yeshua is the agent. Right? He's God in the flesh. There's no one like Him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He doesn't change. Right? And He's trying to get everybody to embrace Him as the only true God... And all these other gods are nothing more than either the imagination of our own minds or fallen demons that we have deified. that are at war with Yahovah, the king of the universe. This is not the God of the Bible of what Antiochus is trying to get people to do. And a lot of the Jewish people were like, we're tired. I mean, yeah, we serve this God, but we haven't heard from him in forever. It's been a few hundred years. We're not really seeing any benefit. We're not getting ahead. We need to just learn how to watch this. Play the game. Anybody here ever heard that in business? You need to learn how to play the game to to get ahead. This isn't personal. This is just business. Right? And you just need to do this to get ahead. And you need to do this in the church to get ahead. This is how you play the game. You seeing some connections here? The connections are even more fascinating the more you look at this and then you start looking at what's happening. Watch this. In the world today, and it is Mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. I want to go, uh, I want to jump ahead. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. So there was this war, this fighting going on among the, the priests. Antiochus thinks it's an attack against him and he needs money. The easiest way for people to get money during that time was, what do you do? You raid the temples and the treasury. So he uses the belief system. When when you start studying everybody's different views, what seems to be is that he saw this, he thought maybe, but he also used it as an excuse. I'm going to go and invade Jerusalem, and I'm going to raid the temple and raid the the treasuries so that I can fund my wars. And also deal with these these rebellious Jews. I'm sick and tired of messing with them. We're going to fix this. You're going to embrace the Greek culture or I'm just going to kill you. And that's what he did. So he comes and he attacks them and all this other stuff. And then I'm going to pick up in verse 41 still in 1 Maccabees chapter 1. So, in verse 41, it says, The king then issued a proclamation to his whole kingdom that all were to become a single people, each nation renouncing its particular customs. All the Gentiles conformed to the king's decree, and many Israelites chose to accept his religion sacrificing to idols and profaning the Sabbath. The king also sent edicts by messenger to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, directing them to adopt customs foreign to the country, banning burnt offerings, sacrifices, and libations from the sanctuary, profaning Sabbaths and feasts, defiling the sanctuary and everything holy, building altars, shrines, and temples for idols, sacrificing pigs and unclean beasts, leaving their sons uncircumcised and prostituting themselves to all kinds of impurity and abomination so that they should forget the law and revoke all observance of it. Anyone not obeying the king's command was to be put to death. Writing in such terms to every part of his kingdom, the king appointed inspectors for the whole people and directed all the towns of Judah to offer sacrifice city by city. Many of the people, that is, every apostate from the law rallied to them "...and so committed evil in the country, forcing Israel into hiding in any possible place of refuge. On the fifteenth day of Kislev, in the year 145, the king built an appalling abomination on top of the altar," in the temple there, "...of burnt offering. And altars were built in the surrounding towns of Judah, and incense offered at the doors of the houses and in the streets." Any books of the law that came to light were torn up and burned. Whenever anyone was discovered possessing a copy of the covenant or practicing the law, the king's decree sentenced him to death. Month after month, they took harsh action against any offenders they discovered in the towns of Israel. On the 25th day of each month, sacrifice was offered on the altar erected on top of the altar of burnt offering. Women who had their children circumcised were put to death, according to the edict, with their babies hung around their necks, and members of their household, and those who had performed the circumcision were executed with them. Yet there were many in Israel who stood firm and found the courage to refuse unclean food. They chose death rather than contamination by such fair... Or profanation of the holy covenant, and they were executed. It was true. It was a truly dreadful retribution that visited Israel. I wanted you to see here that Antiochus forced them to offer these sacrifices, eat pork. They, they, he stopped. You can't keep the Sabbath. There are all these things that made them really separate. You can't keep the Sabbath. You cannot circumcise your children. You cannot keep the biblical feast. um, And you have to eat unclean foods. And if we catch you doing any of these things, we will not just simply kill you. We will make a billboard out of you. In a most horrific way that makes what Isis has done pale in comparison. Then he made them offer, the, you have to keep reading, but he made them offer these sacrifices in every town on the 25th of every single month and forced them to eat pig. You have to get, uh, and, and this went on and on and on. Um, let me let me uh, take you to First Maccabees chapter two, starting with verse fifteen. This is basically the start of this uh, revolt. The king's commissioners, who were enforcing the apostasy, came to the town of Modin for the sacrifices. Many Israelites gathered around them, but Mattathias and his sons drew apart. The king's commissioners then addressed Mattathias as as follows. You are a respected leader, a great man in this town. You have sons and brothers to support you. Be the first to step forward and conform, conform to the king's decrees. As all the nations have done and the leaders of Judah and the survivors in Jerusalem, you and your sons shall be reckoned among them the friends of the king. You and your sons will be honored with gold and silver and many presents. Raising his voice, Mattathias retorted, Even if every nation living in the king's dominions obey him, each forsaking his ancestral religion to conform to his decree, I, my sons, and my brothers will still follow the covenant of our ancestors. Can I hear an amen, somebody? May heaven preserve us from forsaking the law and its observances. As for the king's orders, we will not follow them. We shall not swerve from our own religion either to the right or to the left. As he finished speaking, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice on the altar in Modim. As the royal edict required. When Mattathias saw this, he was fired with zeal, stirred to the depths of his being. He gave vent to his legitimate anger, threw himself on the man and slaughtered him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's commissioner who was there. "...to enforce the sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. In his zeal for the law, he acted as Phinehas had against Zamre, son of Selu. Then Mattathias went through the town, shouting at the top of his voice, let everyone who has any zeal for the law and take his stand on the covenant, come out and follow me." Then he fled with his sons into the hills, leaving all their possessions behind in the town. So, what we see is that the king has these people that are his... Enforcers, they're going around in every single town and they're forcing everybody to offer these sacrifices on the 25th of every month. Uh, <clears throat> and what he's trying to do is he's trying to force them to follow his Greek culture and become one people. Stop separating yourselves. You're going to have to embrace this Greek culture. He's tired of messing with it. He goes there <clears throat> And Mattathias, as far as he knows, he's the only one, him and his sons. He's a priest. He's in this small town. The commissioner shows up. It's time for the sacrifice. And he's just going to make sure everybody does the sacrifice. Stop and think about it from a, just a secular Jewish mind. Let's say you're not really religious. You're sort of religious. Maybe you're a cultural Christian. You just kind of go to church, Right? Um, and the guy shows up and he goes, listen, we're going to offer, we're going to kill this pig. Anybody can eat it later. It's not like we're just going to kill it and throw it away or whatever. You know, we're going to kill this pig. We're going to, you know, I don't know, dance a jig around this thing and burn some stuff that smells funny and, you know, do our little, do our little thing, whatever, whatever this scene is, right? And then everybody can go on their merry way. How many people today, any Christians would go, well, what's the big deal? I mean, they're just going to do their thing and I can still, you know, worship God and okay. I mean, and what's the big deal? And if we do this, hey, you know, then we're not ostracized and we don't look different. We're not acting different. We're not separated and we have opportunities. We can make money. Hey, how about if we start raising pigs and selling it for the sacrifices? We can make some cash. You see this logic? Mattathias is a priest. He has been seeing this stuff go on. He has seen Jerusalem ransacked. He's seen these abominations. Antiochus puts a statue of Zeus in God's temple. He offers a sacrifice of pigs on God's altar. Mattathias loves God. He's zealous. He's a priest. And he's like, I'm not doing it. The guy comes down. and he goes, now Mattathias, you're a, you're a powerful guy. You got people that follow you. Matter of fact, if you'll just do, be the first Jew to come forward here, let's do this thing. Let's do the dance. And guess what? You're going to get money. You're going to get rich. You're going to be called a friend of the king. Mattathias goes, I don't care if every kingdom in the world does it. I'm not. But then one of his brothers steps forward and says, well, I'll kill it. I'll kill the pig. And Mattathias in his zeal kills him kills the emissary, and destroys the altar. He burnt the bridge. And he knows Antiochus is coming. He goes through the town. He says, anybody that has a love for God and a love for his word, follow me. A lot of them do, and yes, the army comes a lot of them are so zealous for God and His law that when the army shows up, they show up on the Sabbath. And they say, they they call for them to come out because they're hiding in the rocks and the caves and stuff. And they shout out, we're not coming out. And if you kill us, let it be known to you this day, you know, that we serve the Lord our God and they wouldn't fight on the Sabbath. And so Antiochus' army comes in there and he slaughters them all, men, women, children, all of them. Mattathias hears about this and he goes, okay, look, let it be known today that we're going to serve God, but that also means that we might be called to fight on the Sabbath and we will do it. And they did. And they eventually kick Antiochus' tail. Hallelujah. You have to get to chapter 4 to get to that point. A lot of other things have happened in the meantime. And then I want to try to, try to tie this together in the little bit of time I've got left. In chapter 4, picking up in verse 36 through 45. A little bit lengthy. Um. Uh, This is when uh, they capture Jerusalem. Judas uh, and his brothers then said, Now that our enemies have been defeated, let us go up to purify the sanctuary and dedicate it. So they marshaled the whole army, went up to Mount Zion. There they found the sanctuary deserted, the altar desecrated, the gates burnt down, the vegetation growing in the courts. Can you just see that? as it might in a uh, wood or on some mountain, while the storerooms were in ruins. They tore their garments and mourned bitterly, putting dust on their heads. They prostrated themselves on the ground. And when the trumpets gave the signal, they cried aloud to heaven. Judas then ordered his men to keep the citadel garrison engaged until they had purified the sanctuary. They said, put guards on the wall. And make sure that we're protected while we do this. Because they hadn't totally defeated Antiochus yet. Next he selected priests who were blameless and zealous for the law. To purify the sanctuary and remove the stones of the pollution to some unclean place. They discussed what should be done about the altar of burnt offering. Which had been profaned. And very properly decided to pull it down rather than later be embarrassed about it since it had been defiled by the Gentiles. They therefore demolished it and deposited the stones in a suitable place on the hill of the dwelling to await the appearance of the prophet who should give a ruling about them. I'll leave that for later. They took unhewn stones as the law prescribed and built a new altar on the lines of the old one. They restored the holy place And the interior of the dwelling and purified the courts. They made new sacred vessels and brought the lampstand and the altar of incense and the table to the temple. They burned incense on the altar and lit the lamps on the lampstand and these shone inside the temple. They placed the loaves on the table and hung the curtains and completed all the tasks that had to be undertaken on the 25th of the month of Kislev. In the year 148, they rose at dawn and offered a lawful sacrifice on the new altar of burnt offering which they had made. The altar was dedicated to the sound of hymns, zithers, lyres, and cymbals at the same time of the year and on the same day on which the Gentiles had originally profaned it. The whole people fell prostrate in in adoration and then praised heaven who had granted them success. For eight days they celebrated the dedication of the altar, joyfully offering burnt offerings, communion, and thanksgiving sacrifices. They ornamented the front of the temple with crowns and bosses of gold, renovated the gates and storerooms, providing the latter with, uh, with doors. There was no end to the rejoicing among the people since the disgrace inflicted by the Gentiles had been affected, effaced. Judas and his brothers and the whole assembly of Israel made it a law that the days of the dedication of the altar should be celebrated yearly at the proper season for eight days beginning on the 25th of the month of Kislev with rejoicing and gladness. They then proceeded to build high walls with strong towers round Mount Zion to prevent the Gentiles from coming and riding roughshod over it as in the past. Judah stationed in a garrison there to guard it. He also fortified Beth Zur so that the people would have a fortress confronting Edomia. Let me uh, try to pull all this together. Number one, this happened 150 years before the time of Christ, and Antiochus Epiphanes, or Epimenes, uh, was a type of Antichrist. He was not the Antichrist, but a type of Antichrist. He outlawed the stuff I've already shared with you and tried to force the Jewish people that loved God and loved His Word to coexist and at least embrace the Greek culture. Mattathias says, we're not doing it, I'd rather die. They leave everything they have and they run to the hills and they leave all their possessions behind. God grants them victory. They start a guerrilla warfare, they start winning, and then people start following them. They end up beating Antiochus, his army, like was like six to one just in numbers, but the armament was off the scale. These are people that are gathering whatever weapons they're stealing off of the dead bodies of the soldiers they're killing. Antiochus shows up with his vast armory. Some say even with elephants and chariots and horsemen and all of some 60 plus thousand warriors against about 10,000 with uh, the Maccabees uh, and some of them with pitchforks and stuff. And he literally tells them, he says, don't worry about what you see. And he starts reminding them of the the saints of old. Uh, You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and and those guys, and Daniel, and Abraham. He just goes through this long list. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know that's their Babylonian names. But anyways, that's the one most of us remember. They go and they do this battle, and they win. And they rededicate the temple. And they do it for eight days. Now then, here are the different, differing views on that. Some say that it's because they had enough oil for one day and it lasted for eight. All the theologians say, well, that's folklore. There's no real proof of that at all. Uh, it's really folklore. Uh, what we do know is that Mattathias and them made it a law that they should be doing it for eight days starting on the 25th of Kislev and and on and on. Um, The reasoning also is, you have to remember, these were people that said we'd rather die than break God's law. They're willing to die for it. The only thing they bent on, and then that's debatable, because he said do no normal work on the Sabbath... There's an issue of, is it all right to defend yourself and fight on the Sabbath? And many believe that, of course, God would permit you to do that. But um, they bent on that. Well, this was winter, which is now, right? And we're in the middle of Hanukkah now, which means dedication. It's the rededication of the temple and purifying the temple. It's the festival of lights. What biblical holiday just happened about eight weeks ago? Tabernacles, Sukkot, for eight days. Some also say that it took about eight days for them to purify the temple. All of that is true, Um, and they wanted to have a way to celebrate the rededicating of the temple, but I think it was also the zeal to say, we didn't get to celebrate tabernacles. We're going to celebrate, and we're going to celebrate for the eight days we missed, and we're going to celebrate the rededication of the temple. This is just logic thinking from a Jewish standpoint, and none of that's wrong. There's not not a problem with any of that and to commemorate the rededication of the temple. You following all that? And so some of this is folklore, which is kind of fun or whatever. But the real truth is it's the rededication of the temple and the lighting of the lights in the temple, which they say was fabulous. Uh, They said it was, uh, if you haven't seen that, you really haven't seen a celebration in the ancient days. Uh, And it all happens this time of the year. So here's what's fascinating. Jesus said, we don't have time to get into this because I spent all this time looking at it, but you can go back to Matthew chapter 24. In connection with this, I'm just going to suggest you go and read Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 is where Jesus is talking about the end of time. They're asking us, you know, is this going to be, you know, can you tell us what's going to be the sign of your coming and all all these kinds of things, the end of time and stuff. And he says, when you see the desolation of abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet, those of you in Judea flee. uh, And he says, and watch this, he tells them, he says, and pray that it doesn't happen when? In winter. Pray that it doesn't happen when? On a Sabbath. Pray that you are also not pregnant. What are all of those visions, what are all those messages hearkening back to? The Maccabean revolt of Antiochus, who was a type of Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. There are I'm telling you, there are theologians that will say, the whole thing with the abomination of desolation happened with Antiochus, because he fulfills Daniel's prophecies, I mean, explicitly. And he does. The problem with that view is I hold to what Yeshua said. He said, You need to be looking for it. Why would he tell us to be looking for something spoken of by Daniel the prophet in the future if it's already happened in the past? Can Yeshua be wrong? Can he be confused? Is he going to lead us astray? No, he's God. So he's saying you need to be looking for this event to happen in the future. If that's the case, you think it might be smart for us to at least understand the whole Hanukkah story? You think it might be smart to kind of do our best to try to practice it, to teach our kids and ourselves what it all means? Is that possible? I think it is. Watch this. What do you see happening right now globally? It's the same story right now happening on a global scale. Hanukkah, Antiochus Epiphany, he's coming. The real Antichrist is coming. But watch this. Global society, global Christians, the church is assimilating into the world and saying, well, what's the problem? And are being seduced into coexisting, looking for a one world government, a one world religion, watch this, Where Jews, Christians, and Muslims can all worship equally. Where? Where will that be happening? You should know. In Jerusalem. At the temple. The temple mount. That the world is on fire right now because of what our president said. Why are they on fire? Because they want a one world government. And they don't understand what's really happening. I passed over one because it says that Antiochus and his emissaries come speaking peace. When they come into Jerusalem, he comes in speaking peace to them. Hey, it's all going to be okay. And he walks in and then slaughters them. There's going to be a man of peace come. Somebody's going to come up with the solution for Jerusalem. And a temple will get built. Sacrifices will start, and shortly thereafter, somebody who has gained world popularity, sort of, is going to put a stop to it, declaring himself as God. Epiphanes. and declare a one-world religion. Everybody needs to get along underneath my rule that Jesus told us to look for. And right now on a global scale, it's unfolding right in front of our eyes. It's happening. And there are a plethora of Of believers and theologians, seminary professors that are all caving in to assimilate, to prosper, to get along, to have the conversation, to coexist. Let's not rock the boat. And God says, not rock the boat. There's a storm raging. This boat is rocking. And your decision is, are you going to fall out or not? Are you going to be riding with me or not? And we've got this picture again of Mattathias. He does what has to be done. And then what does he do? His, his first response is, we got to get out of Dodge. Does that sound like a greater exodus to you? Right? It's the same picture. Only on a global scale. But watch this. But still focused on Jerusalem. I'm telling you, only God can do this. There is only one way this can happen. The God of all gods said, listen... All this is going to happen. I'm going to tell you the very end of the matter from the very beginning. Here's what's going to happen. And on top of that, I'm going to give you little previews of it. It, None of that's going to be fun, but I'm going to let you live this out. I'm going to let you see some things because when it happens again, you're going to be able to go, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my, look at, it's the same thing. Are you kidding me? Wow, and so then you said you would cause Jerusalem to become a cup of trembling to the world. You said you would bring all nations there. You said you would deal with them because they divided your land. You see all the politicians, all the nobody wants to admit something. The Bible is real. This land belongs to God. The covenant is his covenant, no politician, no religious group, no particular people can dictate to God what is his and what is not, where the dividing line falls and what is holy and what is not. God and God alone says all that. And he says, I'm going to do something so big, so massive that at the end of time, you're going to go, oh my goodness. You are incredible. Nobody, no person is smart enough, powerful enough, influential enough to weave all this together to make this happen the way you're making it happen. I think it's fascinating. Amen? Uh, And challenging, but also encouraging. You got that last picture, Matt? Matt? I stole that right off the internet. I saw that and I was like, you know, how true is that? Be Maccabee inspired. You've got probably his dad, In the, I don't know for sure, but I'm assuming they were priests. His, this one's older, as you can see, and he's holding the Torah scroll. Although that's really depicted as a high priest, kind of. Uh, he's got the ephod on, doesn't have the stones. Anyways, a, a priest. Uh, and then this one, his son, and you can see the sword, and he's, he's uh, a hunk. He's, he's a big guy. You know, he's a soldier guy. Uh, you know, this is an older guy, and this, this, he's, a, he's a warrior. And you can, see his, you can see his veins and everything, the way they've got it depicted here, and uh, his armor and stuff. And that would be Judah, Maccabee, the hammer. And so for us in our day, listen, we're going to have to be Maccabee inspired. We're going to have to be willing to make a stand. Not on what we think, not on what we feel, not on opportunities. But based on what the Word of God says. What's this. The Apostle Paul says something. In 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 6. Don't hold me to it, but I think it's in chapter 6. And he goes, do you not know that you are what? The temple of God, wherein the Holy Spirit dwells. If we are the temple of God, how dare we defile it? How dare we tell God that we are going to determine what is holy and unholy? And I will do with this temple what I want to do with it, knowing that you dwell in it, and I'll put in it whatever I want to put in it, and I'll participate with it whatever I want to participate with it, because I want to get along and I want to feel good about what I'm doing. If that's the case, don't you think God's going to say, no, my temple is going to be holy and pure. You got two options. Either you do it or I'm going to do it. Either you clean it up or I'll clean it up. And if you don't want to clean it up, I'll send somebody to clean it up and it's not going to be fun. Those are the only two options. God doesn't give you a third option. You don't negotiate with God. Hey, God, you know, hey, but if we do it this way, no, we're gonna do it God's way, and either we repent and get right with Him, or He will help us in the process. Right? So here it is it's the festival of lights, it's the festival of dedication and rededication. I think we should be highly involved. And if all that other stuff about keeping Hanukkah kind of freaks you out, light the candles and think about dedicating this temple to God and purifying this temple so that God could be seen and worshipped and honored in His house. You understand, this is not His house. This is a building. We are. You are the temple of the Most High God, where His Spirit dwells that He's given you. Therefore, I think we should keep it clean. Just guessing. Yeah, I'm sorry, that was so crastic. I think we should keep it clean. Amen? Um, So it's the festival of lights. Uh, It's the festival of rededication. And watch this. That whole scene will happen again. The temple's going to get desecrated. Bibles will get burnt. People will lose their lives. We've just been studying Revelation. People will lose their lives. Which ones? Those that hold to the testimony of Yeshua and keep the commandments of God. The ones that won't. They might be holding to the testimony of Yeshua, but they also don't mind coexisting. They're not going to have a problem with not having the sacrifices. They're not going to have a problem embracing other faiths. They're not going to have a problem having joint birthdays with God and pagans and demons. They're going to, well, what's the big deal? You worship God your way, I'm worshiping God my way. We're all going the same way, it's just a different highway. We're all going to get there the same, you're all going to the same God. And that's what way too many people actually believe, and they think that's okay. It's not okay. Why? Because the God we serve is unique and holy. He is God, and there is none other like Him. Be a Maccabee. Be a Maccabee. Make a stand for God and for faith in Him. Honor Him uh, in life and if need be, even in death. But notice, He did survive. He literally stood up by Himself and said, if all the other nations do it, I don't care. He's there in this town filled with like minded people. He's in the town with brethren, other Jewish people, people that don't agree with him. The official that's there, and he defies them all he says, I don't care if it costs me my life. I'm not going to defy my God. I'm not going to defile my God. And I'm not going to participate. In this abomination. And he stops it. He stops it. I think it's a great story. And, and, a, and a story of deliverance and victory that is also coming uh, in our future as well. And doesn't mean it'll be easy, but there is a victory and there is... Uh, God being vindicated, if you will, in the end and proving that He is God throughout the whole process. So that's Hanukkah. Um, it's not the Jewish Christmas. It's, it's not the Jewish Christmas. Sad. Um, peer pressure. It just knows no boundaries. Uh, it's something much more special, much better, much deeper, much more uh, significant.